So again, this is Isaiah chapter 1. May God bless the reading of his word. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah son of Amos saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens, listen earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now, murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves, they all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. 
I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Amen. Good morning, citizens LA. My name is Everett Benjamin, and I am so glad to be sharing with you all today based on the invitation of Pastor Jason. He and I have known one another for 10 or more years now, starting as far back as an outreach event in Bodeck Lounge at the University of Pennsylvania. And I will say that we, we definitely reminisced a bit as this opportunity was taking shape. But most importantly, we took joy in the way that God's sovereign hand has allowed us to remain connected over these many years. And I will tell you publicly what I've shared with him privately. I do believe that God has chosen the right person to lead this congregation at such a pivotal time. From my own observations, it is clear that Pastor Jason's primary aim is to protect, prepare, and position you as a congregation that you would be fully equipped Christ followers, skillfully carrying the banner of justice. And as you know, we are on our third week of exploring questions of justice. So today, my task is to offer a response to the question, how do we do justice? In order to answer this, I want to begin with a fictional illustration that I hope draws our attention to some very real concerns. So let's imagine for a moment a young boy leaning against a concrete wall just outside the local grocery store. A red lollipop hangs from his mouth, balancing on the edge of his lips. On the edge. Ah, what a phrase, thought this older gentleman, having just left a Christmas Eve service where, where pastors spoke about people on the margins. He stops. And just before heading in to grab one last item for his wife, he turns to the boy and says, let me get you something to eat. The boy was already quite thin and a lollipop was surely no kind of meal for a growing youth. The boy glances at the man and then looks over past the clock just beyond the entryway and then back to the ground. No words, but the gentleman took this as a sign and quickly grabs a gourmet sandwich from the deli counter and heads back out. Just as he arrives, he notices the boy helping a woman place bags in the trunk of her car. So he hurries over to offer the boy the recently purchased sandwich. And the woman and the boy, they look at the man confused. Then the driver's side door opens up and a tall man steps out to address the gentleman. I'm not sure what you thought this was, man, but we don't need your sandwich. He then pauses and 
and looks down to see the label that reads pesto chicken. And he shakes his head in disbelief and says, plus my, my son has a major nut allergy. You could have killed him. Now, this, this scenario may confuse you at first until you reconsider the characters. Let the boy and his family be our neighbors and substitute the gentleman with the collective church. We, the church, very much like this gentleman, quickly assume the needs of our neighbors before we ever learn their names. We seek solutions instead of listening to their stories. We offer condolences when truthfully we are the ones who need to make a change because in the end, our gestures of kindness may very nearly kill someone. The grocery store illustration. It offers an honest depiction of how we, the church, do justice. And I, I don't mean this in any kind of commendable way, but rather as an invitation to look in the mirror and question our witness. Are we operating according to Isaiah 117, learning to do good, or are we doing more harm? Are we seeking justice or justification? Are we correcting oppression or creating further opposition? Are we defending the fatherless or dividing up families? Are we pleading the widow's cause or begging the government to take care of our own? And as our nation reckons with the calculated killing of, of black individuals, how we do justice matters. It matters because the gospel we preach details of a coming kingdom that alleviates tears. But how can we take joy in suffering when we live a life avoiding our neighbor's pain? We cannot. We cannot fully receive the joy in Christ if we have not suffered alongside our neighbors. This kind of confounding nature of gospel justice, it, it starts with the weak. The justice of God, it, it not only lifts the wounded from darkest pit, but it fills the hole so that no other people would fall in. And, and we, we are the gap fillers. We are the, the groundskeepers of justice. And that's why I want to turn our attention to a familiar scripture of a man in a pit. Genesis 37 conveys the story of a 17-year-old Joseph who's, who's found boasting of his dreams to the displeasure of his brothers. Some years later, they, they devise a plan to kill him and conceal their wrongdoings. But in steps Reuben, the eldest brother, who says, don't shed any blood, throw him in the pit, but do not lay a hand on him. Scripture records that, that Reuben intended to rescue Joseph from the pit, but later found that Joseph had been sold into slavery. Ten years passed between the disavowing of his brothers, his enslavement in a far-off land, and his elevation to kingly stature. 
In Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph comforts his apologetic brothers with a commonly repeated adage. What you meant for evil, God used for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Hmm. Now, having heard this story many times, what is often emphasized is the power of God to transform the sinfulness of man into something that's good. And some would even highlight the actions of Reuben as a form of God's preemptive sovereignty, protecting the future unfolding of Joseph's dreams. One might go so far as to even say that slavery was a blessing. For without it, how else would Joseph's dreams have been fulfilled? But in this way, we wrongly communicate that God approves of our wrongdoing. Notice that in the scripture, Joseph, the individual most acutely aware of God's goodness in his life, does not circumvent the wrongdoings of his brothers. In fact, he calls it evil. And not only does he call it evil, but he does not distinguish between any of his brothers. When Joseph says what you meant for evil, he refers to all of his brothers, including Reuben. In the eyes of Joseph and in the eyes of God, Reuben's actions were no less evil than the brothers who conspired to kill. When given the chance, to respond to premeditated murder, Reuben is a passive bystander. It was easier for, for Reuben to suggest a, a slight change of plans rather than bring correction and face the possibility of joining Joseph dead in the pit. He wanted to, to stop something from happening. But he would not go so far as to put his own life on the line. But this is the cry of justice. Like the blood of Abel from the ground when the Lord says, what have you done? And we answer, nothing. And see, our nothing is just as bad as having done the killing with our bare hands. Reuben is complicit, and in the face of our brothers and sisters, we are Reuben. Every time we watch the premeditated murder of black bodies and pass off these events as anomalies, small blights on an otherwise pristine American record, we are complicit. Every time we reach the conclusion that only a slight change of plans is necessary rather than a complete systemic overhaul. We are complicit. Our collective passivity and our foregone conclusions are grounded in the assumption of our nation's goodness. Some believing in the goodness of our nation from its founding and others hoping in the goodness of our nation's future. But our nation... It's no more good and, and no less evil than any other nation. 
Whatever rhetoric we weave into our constitutional declarations or Christian doctrines that expresses this lie is part of what leads to death. People are removed to prisons and killed in public under the pretense of eliminating evil so as to preserve our nation's supposed goodness. This lie kills. And the question that follows then is, how do we oppose the patterns of evil? Well, when conversations arise that attempt to paint our nation as inherently good, we must confess our historical sin. This requires that we become aware of the wrongdoings of our nation. We cannot avoid evil and do good. And that's why Isaiah 117 says, learn to do good. To do good, we must learn about the harm that has been done and who has been wronged so that we can learn to do otherwise. We must become intimately acquainted with our neighbor's pain. We must learn their stories and know their names. Although it's possible to work your way through a reading list of texts that digs into the subject of race, nothing can replace learning from and listening to our neighbors. The scripture continues by saying, seek justice. The word means, seek, excuse me, means to go after or pursue. But we cannot seek, look for, or, or locate what we cannot identify. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus, to be our landmark of justice. When we define justice as giving or restoring life to individuals, we see that the greatest demonstration of justice is God, our father, giving us the life of his son. John 3.16 says so profoundly, for God so loved the world that he gave. If giving life is the ultimate demonstration of justice, then God so loved the world that he justice. God so loved the world that he did justice. Toward us. And many times those who would advocate for a more punitive form of justice believe that justice is best practiced when it when life is withheld from wrongdoers. But Romans 5 says it this way: Christ died for the wrongdoers. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still doing wrong, Christ died for us. See, listen, gospel justice is sacrificial, willing to give up our reputation, our well-being, even our very lives on behalf of another, even our enemies. <laughs> Look, Jesus embodies the justice that we seek. And therefore, the next three statements from Isaiah 117 can be looked at almost like mile markers on our way toward justice. The scripture says, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. 
and plead the widow's cause. To, re- to correct oppression is, is to make right or to restore the reputation of those who are oppressed. To bring justice to the fatherless is to give space or, or make room for those who are without family. To plead the widow's cause is to care for those whose lives have been hampered by death. Alleviating injustice begins with learning from and listening to our neighbors. However, it's established if and when we continually decide to intentionally use our ability our access, and our authority to restore the lives of others. When we use our ability to correct oppression, it's like writing songs that guide the hearts of men and women to honor each other as created in the image of God. When we use our access to bring justice to the fatherless, it's like purchasing homes or or adding additions simply to house others at no charge. We use our authority to plead the widow's cause when we ensure that the finances of our congregation raise the standard of living for those who have endured loss. We, the church, are the greatest threat to injustice. When we offer our gifts and whatever we gain to sustain the lives of others, It's then that the pattern of grace overwhelms the pattern of evil and goodness is our portion. See, when we start down that path of justice, we do so by learning to do good. Learning to listen to our neighbors. And we continue on this journey by seeking justice, modeled after Christ, restoring the reputation of those who are oppressed making room for those without family, and caring for those with loss. But how is justice sustained? I ask this because scripture records that Israel, who was once praised for its demonstration of justice, is found in Isaiah 121 to be likened to a prostitute, once full of justice, but now filled with murderers. A prostitute. That's an individual who has divided loyalties. Someone who plays the fence, who performs for multiple partners. How does the church sustain justice and keep from finding itself in the same estate? Well, we cannot sustain this on our own. We can only sustain our allegiance to the justice of Jesus when we completely and totally depend on the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16 tells us this way, the Spirit will guide us into all truth. Therefore, it is the leadership of the Spirit that will keep us steady on this journey of justice. For there will be opposition. When we free the oppressed and we make room for the outsider and lift the brokenhearted, there will be opposition. If we really commit ourselves to a prolonged pursuit of Jesus's justice, claps may very quickly turn to criticism. But the Lord comforts us saying this. 
In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus. He put himself at odds with every kind of evil. But every kind of evil, Christ has overcome. Every obstacle to justice, Jesus traversed. The hatred of men, the envy of brothers, the loss of his own life, Jesus entered the pit of our sin with us. He lifted us out and endured suffering on our behalf. And that is how we, the church, do justice. We come alongside our neighbors. We use our strength to raise the weak. We suffer as though we are to blame. This is our reasonable service. Now, now some of you who've been listening, you may look in the mirror now and question your witness and find yourself to be more of a passive participant in this gospel of justice. You know of Jesus, but you've lived your life on standby. And so I encourage you today, renew your mind with the words of Christ. Learn the way of Jesus and return daily to the person and the work of Christ in order that you might be an imitator of him. Now for others, perhaps you've come to the realization that only Jesus is just in all his ways. And that all other gods and governments will lead you astray. And for those whom that is true, I implore you today, place your trust in Christ. And let the Spirit of God lead you in the way of justice. Let's pray. Lord, we receive your grace today. Your grace to live against our own will and serve others. We ask that you would train our hearts to seek justice. We ask that you would show us the very steps that we must take to, to follow after you, to operate in obedience to your will, God. We thank you for the tremendous way that you have modeled what it looks like to serve others, Lord God, what it looks like to give even your life on behalf of others, God. We just ask that uh, we would be trained in that kind of righteousness, that kind of daily living, God. I also pray that in the areas where just receiving and understanding uh, what your word speaks about in the area of justice, where there is still confusion, I pray and ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would bring clarity and conviction. I, I pray and ask, God, that you would just um, just clearly show uh, the church, both um, collectively and individually, uh, what does it mean, what does it look like to walk in obedience to what you have shown us through your word. 
So thank you again, Lord, for for what you have uh, just brought before us, God, and we uh, we honor you with with our lives. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen.